847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews uh, with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, I plan to take a deep dive into music from a specific film franchise. Uh, in this case, uh, it will be the five movies in the original Planet of the Apes film series, uh, beginning with the first installment in 1968 and ending in 1973 with the fifth installment, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. It's always been a favorite series of mine. Um, as a kid, I loved the uh, high concept sci-fi aspects uh, and the mind-blowing uh, plot twist. But uh, once my love of movie music developed, I found um, so much to love in terms of the music that's heard here in this film series uh, from composers Jerry Goldsmith, Leonard Roseman, and Tom Scott. One of my initial ideas with this podcast was to eventually take a listen to music from certain film series uh, and see kind of what makes the music tick. Uh, if there's any hallmarks that are shared by the various scores, uh, whether it's by the same composer or, or uh, different composers. And I thought this was an excellent example. Uh, what also motivated me was the recent box set release by La La Land Records of all the music from these five films, uh, something any fan should check out as it's a real deluxe treatment uh, with fantastic liner notes by Jeff Bond. And as far as sound quality, it's the best that these scores have, have ever sounded. Uh, most specifically, though, the original 1968 Planet of the Apes. Now, just for some quick production background on this series, uh, for anyone who remains uninitiated, uh, it all began in 1968 uh, with Planet of the Apes, directed by Franklin Schaffner, uh, starring Charlton Heston, and based on a book by French novelist Pierre Boulle, uh, with a screenplay worked on by such luminaries as Rod Serling and Michael Wilson. It concerns present-day astronauts who inadvertently travel through time and space to what seems to be an alien world, uh, where simians dominate the human race. It became such a massive commercial and critical hit that it was soon followed by multiple sequels. Um, this being uh, odd, as in, in that day and age, uh, no one really talked about franchises or anything of, of that ilk, and sequels were often uh, looked down upon by the studios as something to avoid. Uh, the sequels weren't really a reliable source of profit uh, for the studios. There were, of course, sequels in the Godzilla and James Bond series, for example. Um, but what made Planet of the Apes stand out um, was the attempt to craft an overarching narrative, uh, something serialized, where each new installment built on what came before it and expanded it. 
This is eventually what has emerged today as the model to follow in movies. What we see now in Star Wars and Harry Potter and the Marvel movie franchises. Um, in fact, the Planet of the Apes time frame in the movies eventually folds back in on itself, sort of closing the loop on its own story. So I mentioned that in focusing on music from a particular film series, uh, it can allow me uh, to try to find trademarks in the various scores that are composed, um, whether they do come from one composer or several. Um, and it could be a recurring theme. Uh, the first example that most listeners and fans might point to in this scenario was the James Bond theme, uh, composed by Monty Norman and arranged by John Barry for Dr. No uh, in 1962. And then it's heard throughout the movies all the way up to the current Daniel Craig-led features of today. Um, this theme is the sonic stamp for that series. It accompanies the character of, of James Bond on each adventure, and its appearance um, in each respective score is always welcomed. Now, with Planet of the Apes, what I find interesting is that while it doesn't have a central defining melody or theme uh, that reoccurs, something like the James Bond theme, it does present its own unique soundscape uh, that uh, since became identifiable, um, extending to uh, both the live action and the animated short-lived TV series that followed the movies, um, and also to the point now that when parodied or referenced, most audiences, even if unconsciously, seem to understand that it's the sound world of the uh, Planet of the Apes movies. Without getting too technical, I think the best way to describe that soundscape of those movies would be avant-garde, dissonant, uh, percussive, and aggressive, um, and primarily all acoustic. It's not really um, an electronic soundscape. Um, even specific instrumentation reoccurs at times during the series, uh, such as the ram's horn and the bass slide whistle. Um, now, Jerry Goldsmith started it all, breaking new ground in terms of movie music with his approach, uh, really smashing the mold of what the sound of science fiction and cinema could be, um, utilizing these very challenging uh, concert classical techniques. Um, in all honesty, I could probably devote an entire episode to just this one score, uh, the original Planet of the Apes. It's infinitely fascinating and brilliant, but I do like the idea of sort of listening to how Goldsmith's initial approach set the standard to follow and kind of permeated the rest of the movies in the series. But you might be wondering what exactly do I mean when I say avant-garde or, or dissonant or what are these concert classical techniques that Goldsmith sort of brought into the film score. Uh, so I want to just give a couple of examples of these. Um, so the, the techniques that Jerry Goldsmith adopted are ones which uh, famously broke the mold in the classical world during the early uh, 20th century, very much akin to how Goldsmith sort of broke the mold in 1968 with this score. Um, but these techniques um, that were introduced uh, were led primarily by composers such as Igor Stravinsky, uh, Bela Bartok, and Arnold Schoenberg. Um, each of these geniuses sort of explore their own respective individualistic contributions to the concert classical world. And Jerry Goldsmith's sound for Planet of the Apes uh, is a brilliant synthesis of these three uh, different idioms. 
in fact, Goldsmith had stated in, in interviews when asked about his influences or influences on his music, he would often cite Stravinsky and, and uh, Bartok as, uh, as two of the, the strongest influences on his overall body of work. But I think one of the uh, primary Stravinsky uh, works that's an influence on Planet of the Apes is uh, Stravinsky's landmark 1913 uh, concert work, The Rite of Spring, um, which uh, you will find it's uh, sort of its influence. It's been a longstanding influence on Goldsmith's music uh, from there's these jagged syncopated rhythms and these aggressive strings and brass that you'll find in a number of his works, whether it's sci-fi or, or action. Um, and so I want to play an example of that, uh, just in case uh, you may not be familiar with it. This is from part two of The Rite of Spring, the second half of that. Uh, it's a part of the work called The Sacrifice, Glorification of the Chosen Victim. So here's a little bit of that, uh, The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. So keep that uh, aggressive, uh, jagged rhythms in mind uh, from that Stravinsky piece um, as we uh, move forward to the the next piece that I think uh, was an influence is uh, from Bela Bartok. Um, I think what influenced Goldsmith was uh, Bartok's surprising instrumental colors. Um, there are some astringent string tonalities and uh, these rapid piano runs that you can hear in Bartok's a work called Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta. So this is a, a similar work uh, from the composer, and uh, I think there are definitely some traits that you can pick up from this work um, that influenced Goldsmith and uh, Planet of the Apes in particular. So I'm going to play a little excerpt from Bela Bartok's Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta.
And finally, from Arnold Schoenberg, uh, Jerry Goldsmith incorporated an approach called serial or 12-tone technique, which was developed by Schoenberg during the 1920s um, in an attempt to move away from traditional tonalities uh, that you would hear in orchestral music. The way it works uh, is that when you compose in this particular style, you build a tone row uh, of pitches. Uh, You could say 12 pitches or 12 notes in a chromatic scale in a certain order, and you have to use all 12 pitches before you can revisit any of them again. Um, This goes for your harmonic uh, structure as well. It's supposed to level the playing field, so to speak, as best I understand it, uh, so that all of these notes uh, in the tone row, that no one note is more important than the other. Uh, So it leads to a feeling of the music not having any central key, like nothing dominates, and it it basically seems atonal, uh, is pretty much what the succinct description of it is. Um, It can feel alienating. It can feel off-putting. I think this is sort of the avant-garde texture that uh, you get from the Planet of the Apes scores um, is because of this serial or or 12-tone technique that Goldsmith incorporated into the music. So it's it's a highly sort of intellectual concept that, um, you know, was developed in the concert world. And he was able to bring it to a large audience, uh, most of whom probably would never sit through a concert uh, of 12 tone or serial music, <laughs> but it works in a sci fi movie like Planet of the Apes. Uh, so here's an example from Arnold Schoenberg, uh, just to give you a, a taste of his serial uh, compositional style. This is from Schoenberg's Piano Concerto Opus 42. So that was an excerpt from Arnold Schoenberg's uh, Piano Concerto Opus 42. Um, just as an example, I wanted to put out there as the uh, serial or 12-tone compositional style that the uh, classical composer Schoenberg uh, had developed in the early 20th century. And uh, relating that to Planet of the Apes, um, Jerry Goldsmith essentially crafted his own tone row, his own row of pitches for his score for Planet of the Apes that he would then constantly reference throughout the score, sometimes in part, sometimes inverting the row, uh, but it really becomes uh, that row, that tone row, becomes the thematic glue that binds that score uh, together. So with this inspired melange uh, of, of influences from Schoenberg, Stravinsky, and, and Bartok, and his own personality um, in the music, Jerry Goldsmith uh, also bolstered the orchestra with a boatload of unusual percussion instrumentation, um, including steel mixing bowls and a, a rosin drum, 
which kind of like makes sort of a hooting noise uh, when you sort of perform it. Um, and also just a little tweak of electronic manipulation by way of an echoplex uh, on some of the instrumentation. Basically, it's the echoplex is like using a tape delay machine on some instruments that are recorded separately. But I just mention all this because essentially Planet of the Apes is an acoustic score. Um, Goldsmith talks about in interviews how he didn't really want to apply electronics into the music, um, even though previous to that, there had been electronics in scores for science fiction films such as Forbidden Planet and then, of course, the theremin used in Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, but acoustically, what Goldsmith did uh, is sort of with all of those compositional influences and the percussion instrumentation and the echoplex, this is all to achieve the strange disorienting effect of making the audience feel that they were on another world in another time. Um, an example of that is in this cue, uh, from Planet of the Apes called The Search. Um, you'll hear the echoplexed pizzicato strings uh, right at the top there, and then the bass slide whistle. Um, and on high strings, you'll hear fragmented pitches from Goldsmith's tone row that he developed for this score. So this is a portion of the cue called The Search from Planet of the Apes. So that was a portion of the cue The Search, composed by Jerry Goldsmith for the 1968 film Planet of the Apes. Um, what I find interesting about that cue, sort of as a representative from the score overall, it's not just the strangeness expressed in that cue, uh, but uh, from its instrumentation or its compositional qualities, but it's a feeling of isolation. Uh, I think maybe it's that the instruments aren't overlapping much. They're not really massed together for effect. They're all kind of isolated and taking turns in the uh, musical conversation. Um, so it just has this, this lonely feel to it in, in an interesting way. 
but I think this goes to show what a great composer can bring to a film score uh, when uh, he or she is allowed to be imaginative. Um, later in the score, Goldsmith really lets loose with the Stravinsky-inspired fury um, in the movie's incredibly bold introduction of the apes um, in the uh, chaotic hunting set piece sequence. Um, here's an excerpt of that cue for this sequence, uh, featuring the ram's horn, uh, which sort of introduces the apes, um, and it's the, the horn is almost like an alarm sounding the arrival of the uh, apes on horseback. But if you can think back to what we heard in uh, that piece, that little portion of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, and just that rhythmic fury and that aggressiveness um, that kind of carries over here as an inspiration for Goldsmith in this cue. This is a portion of the cue, The Hunt from Planet of the Apes. You know, it's hard to imagine a cue uh, this striking and aggressive as The Hunt being heard in a science fiction movie today, or really any movie at all. Uh, this was before there were any rules on what a science fiction score should sound like. Uh, this was before John Williams reintroduced the uh, lush symphonic qualities of Hollywood's Golden Age via Star Wars in 1977, which then became the de facto sound of much of the genre. Now, I'm not complaining because I uh, adore Star Wars along with the whole neoclassical trend that it kicked off in scores for the genre from that point forward. But it's also great when the music can surprise you, uh, as it did here in the Planet of the Apes series, which is why I wanted to devote some time to it. Uh, I mentioned that Jerry Goldsmith based his score on the 20th century, uh, typically atonal serial technique, a uh, technique not often heard in movie music. But what's interesting is that it, it could be heard in previous Jerry Goldsmith scores. Um, in several interviews, uh, in fact, there's an interview uh, that he did with Elmer Bernstein in the early 70s. Um, he referred to himself, he being Goldsmith, referred to himself as a quote-unquote serial composer. Uh, but it all depended on the project. So he obviously had an affinity for this compositional style. He previously explored this in his scores for Freud from 1962 and The Satan Bug uh, from 1965. So 
just as so as another example of Goldsmith composing in this uh, in this particular style, um, here's an example from the latter movie, The Satan Bug. Uh, this is his main title to that film, uh, where the serial tone row is expressed in this sort of halting, spiky format. That was a portion of the main title from Jerry Goldsmith's score for uh, The Satan Bug from 1965. That was three years before Planet of the Apes. Um, And I just wanted to present it as an example of uh, Goldsmith incorporating and utilizing the serial or the 12-tone compositional technique from Schoenberg in another movie score, uh, you know, previous to Planet of the Apes. Now, while Goldsmith's uh, score for Planet of the Apes doesn't really feature a long-line, sort of hummable main theme. It does have several recurring uh, shorter motifs that reveal themselves the more you closely listen to the music. For example, in the main title for Planet of the Apes, listen to this flute statement, uh, which seems to wander without purpose. Then listen for this same wandering motif heard on English horn, backed by bassoons and clarinets, in this cue, this later cue from the movie, uh, called the Clothes Snatchers. So both of these examples are essentially uh, Goldsmith, again, expressing that tone row um, in these sort of fragmented little uh, clusters. Uh, but it's it's sort of the, the same tone row. It's just sort of on different instrumentation and different uh, intonations, different instruments, um, sort of like at the beginning of the search where we heard it in the strings in sort of that uh, fragmented uh, format. Um, but that great main title for the movie uh, actually contains much of the thematic material that gets revised uh, throughout the score. The main title is really a succinct summation of what the whole score has to offer. Um, now, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes was nominated for an Academy Award uh, for Best Original Score and proved to be a real benchmark in his career. I think it's the culmination 
of much of what he was exploring sonically throughout the 1960s. Um, his first, it's which was his first full decade as a film composer. Um, it's basically his serial symphonic work. Uh, I think you could sort of play it in the concert hall and it would work uh, pretty well. In fact, one particular chase cue uh, could be considered a short serial piano concerto um, as it features this virtuosic playing from and also interactions between the piano and all sections of the orchestra, including uh, that hooting sound from the uh, the rosin drum. Um, this would be the cue called No Escape. Uh, and incidentally, the piano here is performed by Jacob Gimpel, who had been Jerry Goldsmith's primary composition teacher uh, when he was a teenager. So here is a portion of the cue No Escape from Planet of the Apes. was part of No Escape uh, from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes, a movie which uh, was also a milestone for the genre overall. Um, and as I noted earlier, when the sequels for Planet of the Apes were greenlit, very quickly, everyone involved understood that Jerry Goldsmith's music was an essential component to this series. It was considered as integral to the believability of that world as the makeup costumes, and set design. Unfortunately, Goldsmith wound up being unavailable for the first sequel, which was ultimately titled Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Ironically, this was because the director of the original Planet of the Apes, Franklin Schaffner, he had hired Goldsmith to provide music for his World War II character study on General George S. Patton in the movie Patton starring George C. Scott. Uh, Schaffner and Goldsmith had a, a long-standing working relationship that had gone back uh, years, even prior to Planet of the Apes. So they were very accustomed to working with one another. So Beneath the Planet of the Apes ended up being directed by Ted Post and was released in 1970, two years after Planet of the Apes. 
and it wound up featuring music by another legendary film composer, one who was also daring musically, and that would be Leonard Rosamond. So I talked a little bit about Rosamond on my previous episode, uh, specifically focused on his score for 1990's RoboCop 2. But just in case you missed it, in a nutshell, Rosamond gravitated over from the concert classical world to Hollywood um, in the mid-50s at the behest of actor James Dean and imported his very modernistic arresting style into his film work. And in a fascinating bit of irony, Leonard Rosamond actually studied with Arnold Schoenberg himself, the man who I noted developed the 12-tone serial style of composition which Jerry Goldsmith followed as his model for scoring Planet of the Apes. I think perhaps if there was one possible antecedent for Planet of the Apes musically, it was Leonard Rosamond's score uh, for the 1966 science fiction movie Fantastic Voyage. Um, Rosenman's music for Fantastic Voyage also showcased an atonal, non-traditionally melodic score not too far from a serial composition. For a comparison, here is a bit of Rosenman's score for Fantastic Voyage. Um, This is a cue called The Human Brain. That was part of a cue called The Human Brain from uh, Fantastic Voyage, a science fiction uh, hit from 1966, um, which, uh, for anyone who doesn't remember, it involved a group of scientists being shrunk down and uh, in sort of um, inserted into a, a, a person's body. So they're sort of exploring the interior of the human body throughout the movie. But it was a huge hit for 20th Century Fox, um, which incidentally was the same studio that produced Planet of the Apes. Um, So Leonard Rosamond's assignment to score Beneath the Planet of the Apes made a lot of sense, um, as he could absolutely bring it in terms of continuing the sonic exploration of innovative yet unearthly orchestral techniques. And much like Goldsmith, um, Leonard Rosamond pretty much kept it all uh, acoustic, other than adding in some uh, Moog-type uh, synthesizer splashes of color and and uh, an occasional electric guitar. Um, his main title music for Beneath the Planet of the Apes is swimming in these uneasy, shifting, dissonant tonalities, where it seems to be there's no hope on the horizon at all. Um, and while there's no direct 
uh, reference thematically to Goldsmith's Planet of the Apes music here. Um, really, other than hints of instrumentation like log drums and sort of echoing percussion looming in the background, as an audience, nevertheless, you still feel as if you're re-entering that same world. Um, so here is a portion of the main title from Beneath the Planet of the Apes. That was a portion of the main title from Beneath the Planet of the Apes, composed by Leonard Rosamann uh, from 1970. You can hear how, while technically different from the 12-tone technique used by Goldsmith, Rosamann's music still resided in an avant-garde modernistic style of orchestral scoring. And so, you know, basically provided a similarly unsettling quality uh, to the movie-going experience for the sequel. I'm a pretty big fan of this particular work by Leonard Rosamond, um, which isn't always a popular opinion. I find it really colorful and inventive in its orchestration. Um, and, you know, interestingly, in addition to this component, there are also some chaotic action cues and an insistent pounding march uh, for the apes and the movie. And this is where the ram's horn makes a reappearance. Um, and lastly, there are some weird twisted choral hymns uh, based on all things bright and beautiful, uh, which is voiced on screen in uh, sequences where mutant humans are worshiping an atom bomb. You kind of have to see the movie to believe it if you haven't already. <laughs> um, but I, you know, taking it on faith that many listeners of the, the show might have already seen these movies. Um, but from that list of other components of the score, here's an example of that pounding uh, march for the apes that I mentioned. Uh, this is from the queue called Ape Soldiers Advancing. <laughs>
that was a part of the queue. Uh, Ape Soldiers Advancing from Linda Rosamond's score for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Now, the story picks up right at the close of its predecessor uh, with Charlton Heston on horse with uh, Nova. Um, Charlton Heston appears only in bookending sequences in this movie. Um, he's exploring what's called the Forbidden Zone, while at the same time, another lost in time astronaut uh, takes the lead in the movie. We're also presented with both a commune of mutant humans sort of living underground in a wrecked New York City and an ending, amazingly, more bleak than the originals. Uh, now, regarding those weirdly twisted choral hymns I mentioned that were uh, uh, based on all things bright and beautiful, uh, these are sung on screen, uh, like I said, by, the, by these uh, mutant humans um, as they are worshipping the last atom bomb. And this was a bit of satire placed into this film by screenwriter Paul Dane. So here's a brief sample of that twisted little hymn, uh, Hail the Bomb. So that was a portion of one of the hymns sung on screen uh, by the mutant humans that are worshiping an atom bomb um, in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Now, the other component that I mentioned to the score is the uh, chaotic action music, uh, which is something that Leonard Rosamond sort of had his own stamp and style on doing. Um, it's sort of one of these things where if you heard a Rosamond score and you heard a particular style of uh of this chaotic action music. You knew immediately it was one of his scores. Uh, I'd like to play a part of a cue called Captured. Uh, now, in this cue, you can hear these very complex um, rhythms. Uh, sometimes they're contrasting among the different sections of the orchestra, sort of overlapping. Uh, plus, there's these angry, stabbing brass voices. And then there are these whooping French horns um, that add this panic into the, uh, the overall quality of the cue. So this is a bit of the cue called Captured from Lunar Rosamond's score for Beneath the Planet of the Apes.
As an aside, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the original soundtrack album of this score, released way back in 1970. So, this was still a time when an album release featuring music from a movie was pretty rare, unless it was a musical or consisted mainly of pop songs. Uh, There were score albums for sure, but in many cases it was actually cheaper for the studio to re-record select cues from a movie score with a different orchestra than to actually release the music as it was heard in the film. This was a situation with Beneath the Planet of the Apes, but not Planet of the Apes. Um, Those cues on that soundtrack album from 1968 were the original cues as heard in the movie. Um, Now, to make things even more odd, the Beneath the Planet of the Apes um, had soundtrack had what could be called a concept album, as it also included dialogue mixed into the cuts. And in keeping with the prevailing pop trends of that day, it may be hard to believe, based on the score cues that I've just presented, but the producers had Leonard Roseman add a rock backbeat to several tracks. And I gotta say, my favorite track off the original 1970 soundtrack album is this rollicking rock version of the March of the Apes. Uh, Remember that pounding march cue that I played a few minutes ago? So, dig this rendition. So as you come down off of that high from uh, what is the track called March of the Apes from the original 1970 soundtrack album for Beneath the Planet of the Apes, we're going to continue on with the series. So following on uh, from what was a very nihilistic installment, uh, that first sequel, uh, which showcased a climax that appeared to preclude the chance of any more sequels whatsoever, the producers and screenwriters actually fashioned a really delightful third film in the series, titled Escape from the Planet of the Apes. This was released in 1971, directed by Don Taylor, with a story set in present day, and really flipping the original premise on its head as several apes from the future travel back to the past. 
And in a wonderful turn of events, Jerry Goldsmith was actually able to return to scoring duties for this movie. And he composed a really winning score uh, that on the surface sounds almost a complete 180 from Planet of the Apes, but pays homage in clever ways. This score is uh, more tuneful and tonal. Uh, It's very charming. Uh, It's smaller in scope and more intimate in the instrumentation, featuring smaller groups of players, uh, sometimes even just the flute uh, plus acoustic guitar. Um, Now, Jerry Goldsmith also incorporates pop instrumentation of the day, ranging from a drum kit to electric guitar to steel drums and even an electronic sitar. These elements are all present in the uh, fantastic main title from the movie, which I will play a portion of here. What I find amazing about this cue is that it has this awkward kind of shuffling rhythm in the bass guitar, almost like the gait of a chimpanzee. And uh, the accents, uh, listen for these accents on the uh, from the xylophone and the flute, and the main melodic line on strings seem to sort of reference the original serial tone row of Planet of the Apes, that style of a row of pitches they can't repeat until they've all been used, but it's couched in this rock, this rock and roll setting, uh, which is something that Arnold Schoenberg would never have imagined. <laughs> so here is uh, that main title from Escape from Planet of the Apes from 1971, composed by Jerry Goldsmith.
So, as a movie overall, Escape from Planet of the Apes is very sparsely scored during the first half. Um, in fact, there were a number of cues that were written uh, for that first half, uh, several of which were actually not used uh, in the final version. Um, however, the score surprisingly develops quite an arc uh, over, you know, its entire length. Um, it sort of slowly darkens in tone along with the plot of the film and eventually revisits some of the dissonance from Planet of the Apes and then wraps up in a downbeat fashion in the spirit of the previous two movies. There is also a gentle yet melancholic theme um, often expressed by flutes, uh, guitar, and harp uh, for the two lead ape characters, Zira and Cornelius, and uh, the unborn child with which Zira is pregnant. This is a theme that's probably the most heartfelt music heard thus far in the series, actually. Um, and so I wanted to play an example of this theme. This is from the cue Labor Pains uh, from Escape from Planet of the Apes, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. That was the cue Labor Pains from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Escape from Planet of the Apes from 1971, uh, an example of uh, what I described, sort of a gentle yet melancholic theme uh, for the two lead ape characters and their unborn child. Now, there are also several additional motifs that are introduced in this score, um, such as a short, tense figure that uh, stalks the characters of Zero, uh, Zira and Cornelius, um, just as they are stalked by uh, authorities, heard often in the last third of the movie. Uh, and there's also an ominous three-note motif um, that seems to, it, it's so subtle, but it seems to sort of whisper the terrible fate of mankind. It's heard on flutes initially, but then on angry brass at the end of the movie uh, when the apes reach their uh, tragic and violent end. I'll play examples of both these motifs that I mentioned, um, the, the tense stalking uh, figure and also the, uh, the three-note motif. Uh, they're heard here in the cues, the hunt and final chapter, so I'll play those cues here.
those were the cues, The Hunt and Final Chapter uh, from Jerry Goldsmith's score from uh, Escape from Planet of the Apes from 1971, the third installment in the original Planet of the Apes movie series. So seen on its own uh, as a score or within the framework of the Planet of the Apes series itself, um, Escape uh, is an excellent example of Goldsmith's immense versatility uh, throughout his long career. This is not just from a film-to-film basis, but even within certain film franchises where his sequel scores stand apart from the originals. Uh, He never really rested on his laurels for sequels, uh, sort of recapping or just uh, revisiting some of the same material, whether here or in Star Trek, Gremlins, The Omen, or uh, other series that uh, he composed music for. Uh, upon first listen to this music uh, from this installment, Escape from Planet of the Apes, it might seem a really far cry from the soundscapes of the first two installments, but the same DNA is still evident, uh, just kind of buried, such as in the use of similar percussive effects, some of the same dissonances, um, and these really oblique references to the serial-styled composition of uh, Goldsmith's original Planet of the Apes score. So the Planet of the Apes franchise was really on a roll by this point, having unexpectedly found itself snaking back around to the origins of its own timeline. Uh, So the fourth movie in the series, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, released in 1972, is set 20 years after Escape from Planet of the Apes and charts the beginning revolution of the enslaved ape population rising against mankind. Now, it is often considered the darkest of the original five uh, films in this series. Directed by J. Lee Thompson, uh, who also directed Guns of Navarone, uh, and the 1962 version of Cape Fear, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes displays an intense level of violence that actually had to be trimmed greatly in order to maintain the same general audience-friendly rating of the previous three movies. This movie particularly has uh, much on its mind uh, regarding social and cultural politics, um, as its events and imagery were somewhat inspired uh, by the the recent Watts riots, Um, and thus this film is is definitely a highlight of that original series uh, of movies. For the score... The producers went in an unexpected direction, uh, hiring jazz musician and composer Tom Scott. Even though this was pretty much a cost-saving measure, uh, Scott definitely had experience under his belt, uh, mainly in the realm of composing music for TV. Now, his music for Conquest of the Planet of the Apes continues some of the same avant-garde tendencies of the series so far, but there are portions where it's more akin to progressive jazz than anything orchestral. The movie and the score open with an off-kilter march, uh, perhaps an homage to Leonard Rosamond's more aggressive march of the apes from beneath the Planet of the Apes, Um, but here is that main title for Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, composed by Tom Scott.
That was the main title cue uh, from Conquest of the Planet of the Apes from 1972, composed by Tom Scott. Now, elements of this march theme, this sort of off-kilter march for the main title sequence, um, wind up reoccurring later in the movie, actually, as the uh, ape revolt begins. It's interesting to hear Tom Scott uh, bring in sort of the wild percussion instrumentation from the earlier scores of the series, along with uh, the bass slide whistle. Uh, But his ensemble is uh, overall is just sort of smaller, uh, and its underlying grooves are more uh, jazz than orchestral, which I kind of mentioned earlier. The music feels like less of an integral component, though, uh, in this installment than in the previous movies in the series, although that could be the result of the fact that many of his cues were actually dropped from the final film. There was a decision made to not use as much of his music, Um, so it it has less of a presence. I think it it winds up um, having less of a role in the storytelling aspect of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes than the music did in the three previous films. What did remain uh, was a quirky circus or carnival-like romp underscoring the montage of apes being trained in basic skills and tasks in this cue, Simeon Servant School. That was the Q. Simeon Servant School for 1972's Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, composed by Tom Scott. Uh, Now, Scott also composed some really off-the-wall percussive experiments uh, that uh, were barely heard in the movie. Um, And honestly, due to their harsh tonalities, uh, they're kind of tough to listen to on disc as well. The 
the end result is that there wasn't much left to sort of musically thread throughout this movie to sort of make it resonate uh, with you. This is not at all like the uh, Jerry Goldsmith and Leonard Rosamond scores, which compositionally and thematically contribute to the overall audience immersion into the strange world and the storytelling uh, of each of those films. Despite this, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes is really a compelling entry in the franchise um, in both the theatrical and the unrated versions available on Blu-ray. So it could have been a powerful, if frightening, uh, way to close out the movie series, but uh, 20th Century Fox wanted one more feature, and so in 1973, they released the final film, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, this was directed by uh, returning uh, J. Lee Thompson, like the previous film. Um, Battle uh, for the Planet of the Apes kind of ended up stumbling in the scripting department, though, and it shows in what's sort of a lackluster wrap-up. Uh, a real bonus, though, is that the producers sprung financially to hire Leonard Rosenman again. So at least musically, there was uh, some weight and heft behind all of the uh, on-screen action. The plot concerns a post-nuclear society of apes beginning to dominate man um, and the attempts by mutant humans to strike back. Uh, during the film, though, you actually see apes and and uh, and humans sort of living together, although humans are sort of more like indentured servants at that at this point in the series. It's fortuitous that Leonard Rosamond Leonard Rosamond was brought back to score this installment, though, uh, seeing how as both this film and Beneath the Planet of the Apes feature these mutant humans, uh, which it allows him to revisit a bit of those dissonant avant-garde orchestral textures uh, that he did previously. The real surprise here is how tonal and melodic this score is, uh, at least for a Planet of the Apes score, anyway. For example, the main title is a robust, energetic, three-minute showpiece uh, with this galloping rhythm, uh, martial percussion, and a haughty, long-line melody uh, that's expressed uh, by just brass and woodwinds. This is something that uh, apparently was only made possible because of the movie's short runtime uh, and that it had to be beefed up, so they had to sort of have this main title sequence uh, added in. Here is a part of that main title from Battle for the Planet of the Apes.
That was the main title cue from Battle for the Planet of the Apes from 1973, composed by Leonard Roseman. So that halting rhythmic motif that propels that cue uh, is threaded throughout the score. Uh, usually you hear it in the timpani, um, and especially in the battle sequences, uh, but it really is kind of meant to enforce the inexorable march towards war um, by both the apes and the mutant humans. On the flip side of this bluster is a warm, lovely melody on oboe, uh, representing the familial bond between the characters of Caesar, uh, played by Roddy McDowell, uh, who is sort of uh, the leader of the ape community, and his young son. Uh, So it's heard here in this cue, Caesar Departs. That was the cue, Caesar Departs from Battle for the Planet of the Apes. This warm theme also closes out this movie, and thus the series overall. Uh, So it ends up lending a feeling of uh, sort of uncertain optimism about the future, but it still is sort of an optimistic wrap-up. As I noted earlier, um, Leonard Roseman is able to revisit some of those dissonant, shifting textures uh, from his music for Beneath the Planet of the Apes, uh, specifically in a cue here for battle, um, a cue called March to the Dead City. Uh, it's a place in the movie that basically uh, prefigures the mutants' underground city seen in the second film. Uh, so this is a bit of uh, the cue March to the Dead City uh, from Battle for the Planet of the Apes. In addition to that galloping main title cue, uh, the warm family theme uh, that we heard in Caesar Departs, and the dissonance in March to the Dead City, 
there is also a wealth of charging brass-led cues um, for, for some of the action sequences uh, and for the mutant humans who are mobilizing and launching their assault on the apes' encampment. Um, this can be heard in, uh, in, in several cues, actually, such as the propulsive cue called Fight Like Apes, which uses a rapid variation on that halting rhythmic motif from the main title, along with these rising brass figures. Uh, this is the cue Fight Like Apes from Battle for the Planet of the Apes. That was the cue Fight Like Apes uh, from Leonard Rosamond's score from 1973's Battle for the Planet of the Apes, uh, the movie that sort of wraps up the original uh, film series uh, for Planet of the Apes. So with both Jerry Goldsmith and Leonard Rosamond uh, each contributing two scores to the original Planet of the Apes film franchise, it's interesting to compare their initial approaches to their subsequent efforts. The music for the first two uh, Apes films combines this primitive barbarism uh, voiced through what's an what actually is an intellectually complex musical language uh, being that 12-tone serial style and it creates a fascinating subtext to the films themselves um, but in each of their respective follow-ups escape from planet of the apes and battle for the planet of the apes the music becomes more approachable more tonal overall um, with elements of the uh, initial scores just sort of like flavored in, uh, just sort of embellishments. Um, so as the series progressed, the chasm uh, between human and ape seemed to diminish. Uh, they seemed to meet in the middle and uh, find small ways to establish trust, uh, something perhaps expressed by the shift away from alienating avant-garde and into a more uh, familiar tonal center. Now, even though the Planet of the Apes movies wrapped up in 1973 with Battle for the Planet of the Apes, 20th Century Fox continued on with the franchise, uh, just transferring it over to the small screen. Uh, this was in both a short-lived uh, live-action TV series and also an animated uh, TV series. The animated series was uh, returned to the Planet of the Apes. The avant-garde, aggressive, sonic stamp of the apes film though carried into the tv series uh further sort of cementing this sound in the collective audience's unconsciousness as the sound of the planet of the apes universe um as an example um listen to this cue uh from the planet of the apes tv series uh, it's a cue called human versus ape composed by lalo schifrin uh, from an episode called The Gladiators. 
So hopefully you can hear in that cue called Human vs. Ape, composed by Lalo Schifrin, from the episode The Gladiators from the TV series Planet of the Apes, um, how uh, Schifrin brought in the uh, the percussion elements and the very sort of avant-garde, aggressive um, attitude from uh, both Goldsmith's and Leonard Rosamond's uh, approaches to their scores for the movies. Um, so you can hear how that, that sound, they were still trying to continue with what was that, uh, that sound world of the Planet of the Apes movies just transferred to the small screen. Um, and Schifrin also did the title tune for that TV series. It only lasted about 13 or 14 episodes for being canceled. Um, but uh, Schifrin did some really neat uh, work on that TV series along with a few other composers like Richard LaSalle and uh, Earl Hagen. But after around 1975 or so, uh, the Planet of the Apes series uh, basically went inactive, uh, and it continued to remain fallow for many years, uh, just sort of a legacy property for 20th Century Fox, but uh, n- there wasn't really any attempts to uh, you know, revisit it or sort of relaunch it. But um, So after many years, though, the Ape series was rebooted actually twice. Uh, the first time in a version uh, from 2001, uh, directed by Tim Burton, with music by Danny Elfman, and then it was rebooted again in 2011 uh, with a film called Rise of the Planet of the Apes, directed by Rupert Wyatt, with music by Patrick Doyle. Now, as far as that sound world uh, that became the sonic stamp of the uh, Apes series, um, neither Elfman nor Doyle uh, made much uh, explicit reference musically to these to the original scores uh, in their music. Um, however, Elfman really strove for this uh, layered, textured, percussive uh, sort of sound. Uh, it's it's probably one of his most um, complex as far as the percussive layers that he builds in, and um, sort of layered on top of these fierce modern synth grooves. It's actually a pretty neat score. Um, I'll play you a bit of a cue called The Hunt, uh, just like the uh, the cue The Hunt from the uh, original Planet of the Apes. Uh, it's another sequence of uh, humans sort of uh, being hunted down by the apes in the series. But uh, you can hear, again, the, the wealth of percussive instrumentation, um, but how it... The, the percussion is forefront even of over the orchestra. Um, and uh, it, this sort of is indicative of Elfman's style uh, that he transitioned to around the, the late 90s um, into the, the 2000s. So this is a bit of the cue, The Hunt, from the 2001 version of Planet of the Apes, composed by Danny Elfman.
So about 10 years after uh, that first reboot of uh, Planet of the Apes, there is the latter reboot, uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, which ended up being a great success, both commercially and critically, and spawned two more sequels, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War of the Planet of the Apes, each of which were also well-received. Um, the sequels were directed by Matt Reeves with music by Michael Giacchino. Now, Giacchino is someone who has risen to the top of the uh, film scoring craft and is uh, really emerges one of the favorites in, in recent years. And his scores uh, for Dawn and War of Planet of the Apes uh, lean more towards an overall tonal and melodic orchestral approach, very acoustic approach, but a lot more tonal, uh, befitting you know most uh, you know uh, film music these days. Like I said, you know back when you listened to the original Planet of the Apes, it's hard to get something that's as strange and challenging as a twelve-tone score into a modern-day film. But uh, uh, Giacchino has composed some wonderfully evocative themes for both of these uh, Apes movies that he scored, kind of reminiscent of some of the thematic material that he did on the TV show Lost. Um, but Giacchino also wanted to tip his hat to the legacy of the, the fantastic music for the original film series. So he does incorporate a lot of the percussion instrumentation that was heard on Goldsmith's original Planet of the Apes. And also some very aggressive, uh, syncopated action cues, um, and you know definitely some creepy suspense uh, material as well. In fact, as far as the percussion uh, is concerned, he uh, he actually has uh, Emil Richards, who has uh, for decades been a part of the uh, LA film scoring scene as. Uh, one of the famed uh, percussionists in town, and uh, he performed on the original Planet of the Apes, and he also performed percussion on G. Kino's. Uh, so it's kind of a neat bit of continuity there. But just for an example of how G. Kino approached the Apes, uh, the Apes series, here is a bit of a, his cue, the Great Ape Processional, uh, from his score for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So while the music in the modern-day incarnations of the uh, Apes movies 
uh, has to follow a bit more of the current trends, I think the uh, the music provided by you know these the respective composers, Elfman Doyle and uh, Jay Kino, uh, represent some of their strongest work, and their the scores that they provided for these films are extremely memorable and some of my favorites from them from their own work. But there is still a uniqueness to the first incarnation of the Planet of the Apes, uh, both as films uh, and products of their own time and as film scores. The movies changed the game for science fiction cinema from that point forward and also for narrative franchises overall, sort of being a proto-example of how uh, serialization in movies uh, could actually be done and, as I mentioned earlier, what has become the norm uh, for a lot of modern-day movie franchises. And musically, uh, they represent a bold split from the past, uh, from the traditionally tonal symphonic sound of Hollywood movies to a daring exploration of experimentation, not unlike what was happening in the concert classical world around the same time. I want to thank everyone for listening today to this episode and and, uh, joining me as I took a deep dive into the music for the original Planet of the Apes movies that ran from 1968 to 1973 and listening for what connects and what separates the scores from each other across the series by their respective composers, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, Leonard Roseman, and Tom Scott. There's actually a great book called Simeons and Serialism by John O'Callaghan that I found invaluable as a reference as he breaks down the serial style used by Goldsmith and sort of charts the musical history of uh, of that score's creation and a lot of the behind-the-scenes uh, back and forth between the producers and Goldsmith during that time um, and then kind of on to the next couple movies. It's worth seeking out if you're interested. Um, I'm not sure if it's still in print, but it's a really great book. And I also highly recommend the recent CD box set from La La Land Records of all the music from the original five Planet of the Apes films. Uh, The music has been remastered, it sounds great, and there are informative notes uh, written by Jeff Bond. Uh, Incidentally, La La Land Land Records uh, also released music from the Planet of the Apes TV series that I mentioned, uh, for those of us who tend to be completists. Music in this episode was from the following films or concert works. Uh, We heard uh, The Rite of Spring uh, by Igor Stravinsky. Uh, We heard Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta by Bella Bartok. And we heard uh, Arnold Schoenberg's Piano Concerto, Opus 42. We also heard uh, from Jerry Goldsmith, uh, his music from Planet of the Apes from 1968, and Escape from Planet of the Apes from 1971. From Leonard Roseman, uh, we had music from Beneath the Planet of the Apes from 1970 and Battle for the Planet of the Apes from 1973. From Tom Scott, we heard his music for Conquest of the Planet of the Apes from 1972. We heard music from the Planet of the Apes television series, composed by Lalo Schifrin. We also heard music from the 2001 Planet of the Apes, uh, music composed by Danny Elfman. And we also heard music from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, composed by Michael Giacchino. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at ascortosettle.blogspot.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash ascortosettle. And on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's score number two, settle pod. 
If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and review. That's always appreciated. And of course, uh, this podcast is also available on Spotify. Thanks again for listening.